0: All right, church, go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and open up to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 41, and as you're turning there, if you would, let's bow together again for a word of prayer and ask for God's help. Lord, we do come this morning to, above all else, to glory in our Redeemer. We're thankful for His blood that was shed for us. We're thankful that through His work on the cross, uh, we have been washed so that we stand clean before you in christ we 're thankful for what we sang earlier that in christ the uh, the law 's loud thunder has been hushed uh, mount sinai 's flame has been quenched we 're thankful that the law 's claims on us have been satisfied in Christ, and so we come clinging to Him. We pray, Lord, that through your word today that you would continue to work in the lives of your people, we come with full assurance that Your voice resonates through Scripture. So, God, I pray that our hearts would be tuned to it, that you would work in the lives of your people through it. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to be in Psalm 41 together. And this is going to be our last week in the Psalms for a little while. Um, If you've been here, you know that, that we look at the Psalms in between our longer book studies. And we are about to start one of those longer book studies. So, the plan is, Lord willing, Next week, we're going to start a study going through the book of Romans together. So it's going to be a long study. I've always been a, a little bit hesitant to start in Romans. Uh, it's, it's a very long book, and it's probably the most doctrinally dense letter of the New Testament. So it's a heavy letter, and it's a long letter. So starting in Romans is a commitment, not just a commitment for me, but it's a commitment for you. It, it took uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones Twelve years to preach through Romans, so I don't I don't think it will take me that long. But we're going to be in Romans for a little while, and probably what we're do what we'll do is every three or four chapters in Romans, we'll probably pause, kind of come up for air, and turn our attention again to the Psalms. And so, this morning is going to be our last week in the Psalms for a little while, but uh, we will be back in the Psalms in the months ahead. And one of the things that I've mentioned over and over again in this study is just a reminder of how much God's people have been helped by the Psalms over the centuries. You you can find prominent Christian leaders over and over again talking about how much God used the Psalms to minister to them. Probably the person that I have quoted the most in this study of the Psalms has been Charles Spurgeon because Spurgeon loved Psalms. He preached around 400 sermons during his ministry out of the Psalms. His, his life's work, really, was a commentary that he wrote on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. It took him 20 years to write his commentary on the Psalms. And listen to what Spurgeon said about the Psalms. He wrote, More and more is the conviction forced upon my heart that every man must traverse the territory of the Psalms himself if he would know what a goodly land they are. They flow with milk and honey, but not to strangers. They're only fertile to lovers of their hills and vales. None but the Holy Spirit can give a man the key to the treasury of David. And even he gives it rather to experience than to study. Happy is he who for himself knows the secret of the Psalms. I love the way Spurgeon says, the Psalms are a land that flow with milk and honey, but only for those who are willing to travel the land themselves. And I hope that's what this study of the Psalms does for you. I hope it motivates you to want to spend time, uh, spend time in the Psalms for yourself. And, uh, and we're breaking at Psalm 41 intentionally. Psalm 41 is is kind of a breaking point in the psalm. If your Bible's already opened to Psalm 41, notice in between Psalm 41 and 42, it probably says in your Bible, in between Psalm 41 and 42, it probably says, book two. Do you see that? It says that because there are 150 psalms altogether, but the psalms are divided up into five distinct books. So there are five books of psalms that make up the Psalter. And the first book of psalms goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. And so we're stopping today because we've reached the end of the first book of the psalms. And we're told in the, in the heading that this is another psalm of David. And like we've seen with a lot of psalms of David, it is a psalm that is uh, challenging to categorize. Because there are parts of this psalm that sound like thanksgiving, but like you find with a lot of David's psalms, there are other parts of this psalm that very much sound like lament. So it's sort of a thanksgiving psalm and a lament psalm woven together. So let's just read it together and you'll see what I mean. Again, we're in Psalm 41, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read the psalm in its entirety. Again, David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes... Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he'll be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I've sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he's talking about this enemy. If he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and set me before your face forever." Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And we're going to work through this psalm under three headings, all kind of focused on the opening verse. Number one, the blessed person is selfless toward others. The, The opening line of this psalm really sets the tone. It sets the theme for the whole psalm. The opening line is, blessed is he? Now back up and think about that for a minute. Where, where have we seen that word before in the Psalms? Do you remember? That's actually the word that the Psalms begins with. The book of Psalms begins with that word, blessed. Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So get what's happening. This is very intentional. The first psalm of the first book begins with the word blessed, and then the last psalm of this first book begins with the word blessed. So what's happening is this is being organized so that that word blessed serves as the bookends for this first book of the psalms. And you probably remember or you may remember what that that word blessed means. It could be translated as as happy, but not not a superficial happiness. This is the word for uh, a deep-seated happiness or or maybe a deep-seated sense of satisfaction and contentment. The blessed person in the old in the Old Testament is the person who experiences life the way God intended. It's the person who knows God's shalom. They know peace, they know wholeness, they know fulfillment, they know well-being. Which I think we'd have to admit is not something that very many people experience. Think about it for a minute. How many people do you know in your life who you would say are really consistently happy? I think most of us would say not very many. But shouldn't we be? When you think of what we have compared to what our ancestors had, shouldn't we be unbelievably happy? I mean, we, our, our lifespan is significantly longer than our ancestors lived. When you think of the technology we have, our lives are, are exponentially easier than their lives were. We have the kind of medical care they would have only dreamed of, so you would think that we would be the generation of the happiest people who have ever lived. But that's just not the case, is it? There aren't very many people who are genuinely, deeply, consistently happy. They say that when you're young, you think happiness is inevitable. That you have in your mind that, well, yes, yeah, sure, once I get the right job and the right family and the right house and the right car, well, of course I'll be happy then. So you always think happiness is right around the corner. It's like It's like the carrot that's dangling out there that you're certain you will one day catch, but you never quite catch it. And then they they say that for older people, the older you get, you start thinking that happiness is unattainable because you chased it and you chased it and you chased it in your young years and in your middle years and you never got it. And so you start thinking that happiness is some sort of dream, it's some sort of fairy tale that you never actually get to. But what you get in the Bible and what you get in the Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 41 is the promise that that real deep happiness is is a reality that we can have. But here's the surprising thing the Bible shows us. Listen now, this is the surprising thing you get in the Bible. The Bible's going to say that happiness, real happiness is possible, but the way you get real happiness isn't by pursuing personal happiness. Did you get that? The Bible's going to say the way you get real happiness for yourself isn't by making your goal to find happiness for yourself. That happiness, in other words, comes as the byproduct of pursuing something more than happiness. So a good example. Think of Jesus saying, I'll I'll say it wrong first. Jesus didn't say, blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for blessedness. Jesus didn't didn't say that. He didn't say that happiness comes to the person who hungers and thirsts to be happy. What did Jesus actually say? Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for happiness righteousness. In other words, blessedness, happiness, comes as a byproduct of pursuing something that is more important, something that is bigger than personal happiness. So where does it come from? Well, think of the two bookends in, in this first book of Psalm. They're, they're shining light on that. Psalm 1 tells us that blessedness comes from meditating on the law of the Lord. Blessedness comes, blessedness comes from meditating on God's word. And of course, you understand, meditating is more than just reading. Meditating is, is marinating in the word of God. It's where your mind is fixed on a text and you're wrestling with it and you're studying it and you're thinking on it and you're memorizing it and you're hearing it or maybe a a helpful analogy. Imagine that you're holding in one hand uh, a cup of piping hot water and you're holding in your other hand a tea bag and you just dip the tea bag in the water and pull it out what happens a little bit of tea gets in the water right but what if you what if you keep deep dipping it or what if you put it in the water and you leave it there what happens then well more and more of that tea begins to permeate that water well well reading the bible is like dipping okay it's good it's important Meditating on the word is like putting the tea bag in and leaving it there. It's where your mind is being fixed on. You're, you're mulling it over. You're thinking of the implications. You're studying. You're, you're memorizing. And Psalm one says, that's the way to a blessed life. In other words, the, the Psalm is saying that blessedness, listen, blessedness starts with an open Bible and an open heart. That's the way the Psalms begin. Blessedness starts with an open Bible and an open heart. And then the bookend, Psalm 41, says, opening line, blessed is he who considers the poor. Do you you get what's being added now to Psalm 1? It's not just the person who intellectually thinks about the word who is blessed. It's the person now we're being told who puts it into action. Because one of the most consistent commands throughout the Old Testament and in our interpersonal relationships is as God's people, we're commanded to care for the weak, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable. So meditating on the word, Psalm 1, is meant to lead to us living out the word, Psalm 41. Maybe a helpful parallel James chapter 1 is a wonderful parallel to the point I'm trying to make between Psalm 1 and Psalm 41. Because listen to what James says. This is James chapter 1, verse 22. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only. Look at this last phrase. Not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That phrase right there should make the hair stand up on your arms as a Christian because James is saying it is possible for us to deceive ourselves. I can deceive myself into thinking I'm spiritually mature. I can deceive myself into thinking that I'm right with God because I hear. Right? I hear. I hear all the time. Do you know how many Sunday school lessons I've heard? I've been in Sunday school every week, you might think, for the last 40 years. Do you know how many sermons I've heard? I've heard two sermons every Sunday. And I listen to sermon podcasts during the week. And I listen to Christian music. I hear and I hear and I hear. Well, James isn't saying that hearing is bad. What's James saying? He's not warning us against hearing. James is warning us against merely hearing. James is warning us against hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. And thinking that's sufficient when we're never actually doing anything with what we hear. We're hearing and we're hearing, but it's never actually affecting our lives. And of course, you know, right after this is where James gives that illustration of the person who looks in the mirror, sees the image, and then they walk away and don't do anything about it. And he's saying, that's the person who hears but doesn't do anything. They keep walking up to the mirror of God's word. They've heard a million sermons, but they never actually do anything it doesn't have any impact and right after saying that james launches into this description of how hearing god's word should practically affect us and he mentions three real simple things listen to what he says this is skipping down to james 1 26 so here's what it looks like if you're not just a hearer but a doer james 1 26 If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives, that's the same word we just saw earlier, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Do you get what James is saying? So here's one of the warning flags. If I hear and I hear and I hear, but what I'm hearing doesn't affect my tongue. If my tongue still runs loose like a wild horse, and God's word is not governing, providing guardrails to what I say. That's one of the warning signs that I'm a hearer only. That I'm the sort of person who's deceived myself because I hear, thinking that that's enough. He expands in the next verse, James 1, 27, And this connects directly to Psalm 1 and Psalm 41. James says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit Orphans and widows in their trouble. James is saying, here's another practical effect that God's word should have on my life if I'm really hearing it. It should make me a more compassionate person. You know that widows and orphans were the most vulnerable people in first century life. That there was no social security, there were no life insurance policies to help women if they had a husband die. And it was very hard for single women to make ends meet. And so uh, a lady who was widowed, if she didn't have any adult sons, she was in trouble. And of course it was even worse for orphans. There were no government programs to make sure orphans were cared for. So orphans were regularly neglected. They were often taken advantage of. And so James says, one of the signs that I'm not just a mere hearer, but I'm a hearer of the word, and the word's actually having an impact on my life, is that I will practically care for people like that. So, so God's word should, God's word should give me eyes that are more and more aware of those in need. It should give me a heart that's more and more compassionate for those in need. It should give me hands that are more and more eager to help those in need. And if I don't see that in my life, that would be another warning sign that I'm a mere hearer who's deceiving myself. But you'll notice there's there's one other thing that James added in verse 27. Lots of times you'll hear people quote James 1.27 and they'll say, pure religion in the sight of God is to care for orphans and widows in their, their distress. Period, the end. But that's not the end of the verse, is it? There's one other phrase that he adds. is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So what's the other practical effect that if I'm really meditating on God's Word, it should have on my life? It should, it should it just affect me in that I care more for the needy, it should also affect me in terms of moral purity. So if God's Word is genuinely being implanted in my life so that it's growing in its influence over my life, one of the signs of that will be that I will be aware of, repenting of, fighting against sin in my life. So you see how practical James is being? James is wanting us to know it's not enough to be a mere hearer. Really meditating on the Word of God has practical effects. That is the same point being made with these two bookends. Psalm 1 and Psalm 41 are making the same point. So Psalm 1 says you meditate on it. You you have to marinate in the Word of God. And now Psalm 41 is saying the sign that you're really meditating is it's going to make you a different person. In fact, one of the ways it's going to make you a different person is it's going to make you a person who is more compassionate Toward those who are in need. So just to pull this together. So the simple way to say it would be Psalm 1 and Psalm 41 are saying that the way to a blessed life is by living in and living out God's word. Okay, Psalm 1 and Psalm 41 are saying the way to a blessed life is by living in and by living out God's word. Okay, so that's the relationship with that word blessed here. And in Psalm 41, David focuses especially on how meditating on God's Word should affect our attitude toward the poor. Now, of course, that word poor, it it can simply mean people who lack material resources. But it's used in the Bible broader than that. It means the weak, the, the lowly, yes, the poor, the vulnerable. It sort of encompasses all of that. And David says the blessed person... Considers the poor. But that word, that word, consider, is is r- related to the word insight. So it's the idea that the blessed person wisely considers the poor, carefully considers the poor. Right? You're, what's going on here? Is this person sick? Has this person been through some kind of tragedy that has left them in need? Is this person lazy? Because each one of those should be dealt with in a different way. And what do they need? Do they need medicine? Do they need food? Do they need a job? Do they need training? What's the real need? So the word that he uses really combines compassion and wisdom. um, selflessness, uh, Selflessness and discernment wed together. So that God's word should affect me in my awareness, my consideration, and my practical care for those who are in need. And of course there are a million avenues for this. It can can be something as simple as helping the person who just lost a job find a job. Helping the, the single mom pay a light bill to make ends meet. Helping the person who's sinking in debt get the financial training that they need. So they are out of that and they don't go back there again helping with called to care to minister to kids in the foster care system, helping at the, the women's center to make sure moms have the resources they need and babies are taken care of, uh, helping spend time with lonely widows. It, so it's all of this, it is being wise and then sacrificial in my use of time and energy and resources to help those who are weak, vulnerable, needy, helpless. That's one of the marks or one of the, the paths of knowing God's blessing. In fact, look at, look at how he sums up the blessings of it. Back, this is back to Psalm 41. Back to verse 1. And we'll read down through verse 3. He says, into verse 1, going into verse 3. The Lord, this is the person who considers the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he'll be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. You know, people like like often to say that the Lord helps those who help themselves. But, but what David is really saying here is the Lord helps those who help the helpless. But, but not, not in a vending machine kind of way. Where if you'll care for the poor, then you'll have God in your debt. Care for the poor and then God will owe you blessings. That's... That's not what he's saying. But there is a principle of sowing and reaping that God has woven into the fabric of his world. Jesus says the same sort of thing, right? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, and then what's the rest of that verse? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So so those who out of obedience to God and the transformative work of God's word help the helpless are the kinds of people that God is pleased to help when they're in times of need. And did you notice, as we read those verses, did you notice all the wills and will-nots? God will deliver. God will preserve. God will bless. God will not hand him over to his enemies. God will strengthen. God will sustain him on his sickbed. And of course, a lot of these promises are are tied in with the Mosaic Covenant, where God promised Israel that if they were faithful, they would live long in the land and their crops would flourish. But the principle is that God is pleased to help us in our weakness when we're being obedient to him by helping others in their weakness. This is one of the ways that meditating on God's word should practically affect us. That's the first one. Here's the second thing. Number two, the blessed person... Is dependent on God. Look at David in verse 4. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now, this is shining light on why David said what he said in the first three verses. He said what he said because he's now the one in need, he's now the one who feels weak and is in trouble. And we'll find out in just a second that what he's dealing with is some sort of significant sickness. In fact, it's a sickness that everyone around David thinks is going to be terminal. But even worse than his physical sickness is his spiritual sickness. David asked the Lord to heal his soul because of his sin. Now, that could be directly related It could be that David has sinned in some way and God's discipline, the consequence of this sin is this sickness. Or it could be that this sickness has given David time to examine his own heart. And as he's examined his heart, he's become aware of sin that's there. Think of how this happens. You and I most of the time, I'll just speak for me, I I can keep myself busy enough that I rarely do any real deep heart work. But there are times when God has a way of putting you flat on your back, where you don't really have anything to do but think. You, You don't really have anything to do but examine your life and your heart and your motives And and oftentimes in moments like that, you become aware of sin in your life that you didn't even know was there. I I think that's what's happening here with David is David is flat on his back on this sick bed and he's become aware of this sin in his life and he is asking God to show him mercy and to heal his soul. And if I could just pause, this is another mark of the kind of life that God blesses. God blesses humility. God blesses repentance. Here's a practical way to test that. If you can't remember the last time you confessed specific sins to God, something is amiss in your spiritual life. If you can't remember the last time you confessed specific sins to God, something is amiss in your spiritual life. Because one of the marks of being converted is we don't ignore our sin, we don't hide our sin, we confess our sin. And we confess our sin to God because we know God already knows it. Right? One of the things that's happening at the cross is God at the cross is making a public declaration about how ugly our sin is. Our sin is so ugly that the only way it could be paid for was by the Son of God dying the most horrible, excruciating death imaginable. So we confess our sins because we know it's not surprising God. And not only that, we know it's already been dealt with by God so that all all the misery and all the judgment that should come on me because of my sins has fell on Jesus in my place. So I don't come before God as one who is condemned. That's why I would run. I would run if I knew God was angry. But when I come in faith, I have the promise I'm not condemned. I have the promise that God is merciful to those who come in humble faith to Him. So we we come like David and say, Lord, heal my soul, for I have sinned. And that sort of confession, that sort of humility, is one of the marks of a life that the Lord blesses. David continues what he's facing in verse 5. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? That would be a hard thing to hear. Verse 6. And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You see what David's facing? Not only is he sick to the point of death, but his enemies are circling like vultures. Right, you've, seen, you've seen the big group of vultures circling in the sky when there's an animal that's not quite dead, but it's dying, and they're just waiting for that last breath to come so they can plunge in. That's how David is describing his enemies here. They can't wait for him to die. And they don't, they don't just want him to die. David says they want his name to perish. That means they want every memory of David to be gone. Now, for a king's name to perish, what does that mean they're hoping happens here? They want David's dynasty to end. They want a brand new kingly line to come to the throne. They want David and his offspring to come to an end. And David even describes one of these enemies coming to visit like they really care. But what they're really doing is they're they're gathering intel. So that they can leave and whisper to each other about what they see. In fact, David says what they're saying. They leave and say, an evil disease clings to him. That word evil is the the Hebrew word belial. That's the idea. They're saying David's cursed. There are evil spirits that are working against David here. So he's on his sickbed and he is never going to get back up. But even worse than the conspiring of his enemies is what? Verse 9. Even worse than the conspiring of his enemies is the betrayal of his friend. David says there is an old familiar friend. This isn't an acquaintance. This is somebody who was like family to David. David says this is someone who ate my bread. This is someone who David has shared meals with. And you understand in this day to share a meal with somebody was the ultimate mark of friendship and fellowship. Because you didn't run to Zaxby's and sit together for 30 minutes. Meals took hours. So this is someone who David has spent a lot of time with. And David adds, they ate my bread. David was the host. They were the guest. David thought there was a friendship. And now David says, they have lifted up. He has lifted up his heel against me. And it's not crystal clear what that means. Maybe a good image Imagine you have this horse and you're the one who takes care of it and you feed it every day and you walk into the stall to take care of this horse and he lifts its leg to kick you as you come in. That's how David's describing this friend. He has been feeding this guy bread, they have shared meals, and now he is kicking David in betrayal. And of course, just to pause, this verse gets quoted in the New Testament, right? Who quotes it? Jesus. Jesus quotes verse 9 of Psalm 41, he quotes it in John chapter 13, where we find out that that what David experienced in part, Jesus experienced in full. Jesus had a group of men who he invited into his inner circle. He shared countless meals with them. He poured his life into them. He taught and he led and he counseled and he loved, only to have one of those men betray him. So, so Jesus knew what it was to be attacked by enemies and to be betrayed by friends. So what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, this is a psalm that's about the blessed life. So how do you know a blessed life in the middle of attack and betrayal? Notice what he says in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now notice the bookends to this little section. He said almost the same thing in verse 4. Verse 4. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Verse 10. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me. So David is casting himself on God's mercy. It's clear at this point who is against David. The battle lines have been drawn. But David needs to be reminded now of who is for him. Yeah, David's weak, but he knew that that the Lord would give him strength. David was crushed, but he was confident that the Lord could raise him up so that his enemies could be repaid. Now, when you see repaid, this isn't a, a psalm of personal vengeance. Remember, David is the king of Israel, and you have conspirators Who want not just David to die, but his whole family line to be wiped out. And as king of Israel, it's his job to make sure conspirators are dealt with. So what he's doing in his absolute physical sickness and attacks from enemies and betrayal of friends is David is casting himself in faith upon the Lord. And then here's the the final thing. Number three. The blessed person is confident in God look at verses 11 and 12 by this I know that you are well pleased with me cause my enemy does not triumph over me as for me you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever so David's confident that the Lord is not going to let his enemies win Now, in the moment, it seemed like they were going to win. But David's confident it's not going to turn out that way. And he's confident of that, he says, because the Lord is well pleased with him. Your translation might say, the Lord delights in him. Now, that's unbelievable language, isn't it? To say, God delights in me. The Lord is well pleased with me. And it's easy to read that and think, well, yeah, that was David who said that. But people like us could never say that. We couldn't say that the Lord is well-pleased with us, could we? But isn't isn't this part of the amazing news of the gospel? That Jesus lived a sinless life, and he died an atoning death, and he rose from the grave. Listen, he did all of that not just so that God wouldn't be angry with us anymore. Now, it's true. It is absolutely true that I deserve anger, wrath, judgment for my sin. And in Jesus, all of that has been diverted so that the wrath I deserve as someone who's trusted in Christ was exhausted on Jesus. That's true. It's true that all the condemnation that should have fallen on me fell on Jesus in my place. But that's not the end of it. If that's all you understand, then your feeling, your idea will be was a believer, The wrath's gone, so God's neutral with me now. But that's not where the gospel stops. What it adds is that through faith in Christ, we're now welded together with Jesus. So the way the New Testament likes to say it is, through faith, you are now in Christ. You're in Christ. It's like you've been merged together spiritually with Jesus, so that... When God the Father sees you, He sees you in His Son. So, so God is well pleased with you if your trust is in Jesus, not because you're so handsome or you're so religious or you're so dedicated or you're so committed. God is pleased with you because through faith He sees you in Jesus with whom He is perfectly pleased. So David can say, we can say through faith, that God is pleased with us. And then David adds, not only that, that the Lord will uphold him in his integrity. Integrity has to do with the the direction of his life. David clung to the Lord. David trusted in the Lord. That was the bent of his life. And he is confident that the Lord will hold him up. So that's looking to this life. In this life, he knew the Lord would uphold him. But it wouldn't stop with that. David adds that the Lord would set David before his face forever. So David would know God's help now, and he would know God's presence for eternity. Those are powerful truths to uphold you when you're facing this sort of attack or illness or betrayal. In Christ, God is pleased. In Christ, I have the promise that God will hold me up now. And in Christ, I have the promise that I will enjoy God's presence before his face forever. Okay, we sang about that in the last song we sang, right? That, that line that kept getting repeated. His face forever to behold. His face forever. That's what David is saying here. We have this promise that his face forever we will behold. And then verse 13, here's how he ends it. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Amen. And amen. Now, that's not just the last verse of this psalm. That's the last verse of the first book of psalms. And what you'll see as we keep going through the psalms is each book, each of the five books, ends with something similar to this. Just so you see that. Go forward to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 This is the end of the second book of Psalms. Look at verse 19. Psalm 72, verse 19 says, And blessed, notice similar language to what we just read in Psalm 41. Blessed be His glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Go forward to Psalm 89. That's the end of the third book. Psalm 89, the last verse is verse 52. Psalm eighty-nine fifty-two. very similar refrain. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. So you see how the first book ends in very similar language. It is a call for us to bless the Lord. And this word for bless is a different word than started the song. And it's really, I was talking this morning with Adam about this. It's the idea of, of praising the Lord, of worshiping the Lord. Bless the Lord, that's what it's calling for. The God who David was trusting in, he adds, is God from, ev- from eternity to eternity. From everlasting to everlasting. This is just an emphasis that, that he's the same God Forever. So what that tells us is what God did for David, God will do for us. Look to him. He will hold you up. Look to him. He promises you'll know his presence for eternity. He's the same from everlasting to everlasting. So we praise him from everlasting to everlasting. And then he says, amen and amen. You know, that's that's the word for expressing Agreement. It's like saying, yes, it's true. Yes, may it be. And what's interesting is the way to a blessed life in David's day is the same way to a blessed life today. The way to real satisfaction, real contentment, real deep fulfillment is not by giving yourself to pursue your own personal fulfillment. It is by putting your trust like David in the God of Israel. It comes by living in and living out His Word. This is what real faith looks like. Real faith looks like not just a verbal assent. It looks like bringing my life underneath this grand God so that His Word governs me. And one of the ways it governs me, David is saying, is how I act, how I view Those who are in need. So here David saying, Psalm 1, Psalm 41. The blessed man, the blessed woman, is the one who lives in and lives out his word, casts themselves on God for mercy, puts their trust in the God of Israel. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. And I'm going to give you a few minutes in your seat to make Psalm 41 your own. Make the words of this psalm your prayer. Pray that the Lord would give you eyes that see and a heart of compassion and hands that are eager to help and that this would all come as a result of of having a life that is being shaped, transformed by God's word. Thank God that in Christ we can stand before God with the assurance that in Christ he is pleased with his children. He promises to uphold us. He promises that we'll have not just his presence now, but the promise of his presence forever. So take a few minutes to praise the Lord yourself for these promises, and then I'll come up and close us.